So for us, print is still a really key revenue driver. It's really interesting because in lots of other publishers, you'll see print as sort of a, a byproduct of what they do or a bit of a marketing tool. Um, but for us, it's still kind of the core of our business. And, it, and because of that, because that's where we get the majority of our revenues from, we've actually been able to use that money to kind of drive our digital expansion rather than the other way around. Hello everybody, welcome back to Media Voices. We take a look at everything to do with media, whether that's good, bad, or somewhere in between. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard is from my interview with Sarah Vizard, editor of Raconteur. We talked about what Raconteur's angle is on business stories, how it uses its print publication to drive digital expansion, yes you heard that correctly, and their recently launched New Voices program to give writers from underrepresented backgrounds a start in business journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't forget as well that MediaGazer are running a promo for our newsletter all this month, so the homepage of breaking news and commentary for publishers and media owners has us on a little sidebar. So you can visit MediaGazer or follow them on Twitter at MediaGazer to get up-to-date information about everything that's going on in the media world. Effectively, they're media voices, but a little bit more informed and much more regular. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Uh, just quickly, I'm going to Portugal. Ha, Very ha, nice. Ha. I'm going to FIP Congress, uh, and we're going to record some stuff from the Congress. I'm going to be out and about, uh, meeting people, asking them how it is. FIP slogan's great. Off a of Zoom and back in the room. <laughs> um, so we're going to record uh, on Wednesday, and Esther is going to get an episode a special episode if it all goes to plan (laughs) (laughs) but before all that we're going to be talking about our main story and dot dash meredith that still feels very weird to say plans to possibly add more print titles to some of its flagship brands so esther what's the story here well this is something um their ceo neil vogel has has had a chat with access to sarah fisher um and he He's, I mean, none, none of this is revelatory, but he basically says that their approach moving forward is that print brands will be, quote, smaller in circulation, much more luxury. Mm. Um, do we, do any of us dispute that, really? We've been saying that for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I there's mean, the general thing that, that when when Dot Dash bought Meredith, Meredith's print businesses were it definitely in managed decline. Like it was sort of, you know, they're doing all right, but it was very much the numbers were dropping a little bit each year. Um, there wasn't sort of really any any growth, and um, wh- when the when the takeover happened, they did actually end up axing um, a number of titles, including Parents, Entertainment Weekly, and InStyle. All their print editions went. Um, but Vo- Vogel basically told Sarah Fisher that he thinks that Meredith were reluctant to make some of the tougher calls around print, and he says we're no longer willing to invest, uh, willing to print magazines that people are no longer willing to pay for. That's fair enough. Right? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great quote. I mean. Peter, you're you're Mr. Magazines. You're not actually Mr. Magazines, but well, that's um, Samir. I'm going to see him in Portugal. <laughs> <Yeah>. Very nice. <laughs> but to what extent then do you think that this is a, a stopgap along the route to to magazine content being divorced from print? Mm, I don't think it will be divorced in that sense. In the in, in like com- a complete divorce, I think they might live in separate houses for a bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think this is really really smart. Um, and honest, you know, 
the, the idea that he talks about super, what what's he call them, Esther? Super serving audiences? Hyper-enthusiasts. Yeah. And that idea of, that print is for people that really, really, really care. I think we've been talking about that for a long time. So I think, yeah, I'll be divorced in the sense that um, the web or online presence, whether that's app or web, um, will be more regular, more constant, more frequent, more whatever. There'll just be more of it. And some of that will be ad funded and some will be subscription. They talked about, they've talked about Braids magazine and that, you know, at that point in the, in the wedding cycle, when people are buying Braids magazines, they'll pay for anything to get that kind of inspiration. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's just smart. One thing I did want to, quickly query though is what does the cost base for this look like because obviously costs aren't multiplicative in the same way that you know if you print ten thousand magazines they are the same cost per issue to create as if you create a million it costs more per issue to create them if you have smaller runs so what is the basis for I this think idea? these guys are still talking about big runs okay it's, in it's, just it's in probably sense? not the million that they're mm. doing now but you're still probably talking in the thousands. Okay. So I think they're still going to have scale. Um, I mean, he, he, he put out kind of two different lines with a lot of what what, uh, what Virgil was saying. The first was that um, he was saying that um, like revenue isn't what was driving them. It was brands and profitability. So in a sense, like even though a lot of the magazines they cut were, were doing good revenue numbers, he's like, that's, that's not what was particularly interesting. You know, if the profits weren't good enough, they were going. Um, but then he also got to add this other thing. He he said that the the titles that remain, like they're all profitable, which is fine. But it's not that he said finances weren't the most important thing. It's whether the print was was important for the branding of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's still this thing that the print magazine is seen as being, you know, the the jewel and the crown of your brand. And they've almost then been quite strategic in which titles they have. Yeah, you know, which titles have got that jewel in a sense. The Brides one, I think, is interesting. It, with with hindsight, it was probably very good that they ended the print edition in 2019 because the bottom crashed out of the industry the following year. But it's interesting that they're now looking at that and saying, actually, we we probably need to bring that back. Mm. Because that that is almost a ritual when you get engaged as you go and buy all of the wedding magazines. And it, Trust me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that, that's that hyper oh, yeah, <laughs> Um Yeah, so... But this isn't necessarily going to work for every single vertical, is it? There are some mass market titles that probably the print run should end. Maybe they shouldn't end, but they should be scaled back. Mm. Um, you know, print costs, distribution costs, paper costs, all of that at the moment is a nightmare. You know, yeah. We're talking about increases of 30% more. That's going to kill, that's going to kill so many magazine brands. So the, the idea that they're focused on profitability is a really, really important one. This is classic right sizing. There was, some, yeah. there was something interesting he was saying on that. That um, so I, I don't know if this is particularly a US thing, but there's there's a big sort of culture for magazine companies of offering like ten issues for like ten dollars. Oh yeah, um, and the real real cut price subscriptions. That I know I know yeah. people people like Samir have argued really devalues the the idea of paying for that product if you're paying like you know less than a dollar for it, but. Um, Virgo was actually saying that that's they're really shifting away from that, um, and they're just letting a lot of those low price subscriptions expire without, um, you know, they're not sort of renewing them at a lower price. 
Um, mm. I, I can imagine partly because of the increased cost, you, you, can't, you, you can't afford to keep people at that price anymore if, it, if they don't then subscribe to a full price. So he was saying Better Homes and Gardens' circulation is around the 4 million mark now, which was down from 7 million when they did the acquisition because they've just let go of those cheap subscriptions. And they're now just saying, right, you, know, you, you are much more valuable to us if you pay full price. And it's not worth the, the business of, of keeping the rest of them on, which I, that's quite an interesting shift for the, I, I suppose, quote, mass market titles. Well, we've said that for for ages as well. You need to be looking at ARPU again now. It's not a play for scale. It's actually about value from mm. individual subscribers. Uh, what I think is particularly interesting there is the fact that had you said, oh, look, subs- the, the circulation is down to 4 million from 7 million, that would otherwise, without this explanation, have been seen as a catastrophic drop. And it would have been held up as evidence that this was kind of the end of this particular type of magazine. Yep. And again, it's because people, all that came out of get as many people in as you possibly can and sell advertising for as much as you possibly can. And that all comes from revenue rather than profitability. And their focus on profitability is what's changed. That's how I think. It's just, this is really, I think this whole story is really smart. Okay, but okay, but last week you went on an, a notable rant, actually, about something very, very similar. So, what? Ha, well, a, why didn't you do a quick, a quick explanation of what that story was and why, and compare and contrast it to this one? So, Condé and our boss Roger Lange came out and said that Condé wasn't a magazine company anymore, and that got is, your that got your dander up. Yeah, because it's just posing; it's digital posing. What Dosh Dash has come out has come out and said they haven't mentioned the Worth magazine. They've come out and said we need to reinvest in print where it makes sense from profitability. I see. Okay, so, so it's, being- the, it's honest. It's a, it's the this is an honest play. Mm. Whereas Condé was all about getting a headline. Or we're a digital company because we want to be seen as new and young and moving forward and. No, we don't take count town cars to the <laughs> meetings across town anymore. You know, it's, it's just, I don't know. And, and I think it's that investment point that's quite important because, um, you know, the, the, Dr. Dasher actually said, you know, we're, we're going to invest in really good photography, better quality paper. Like the, the print magazines, we're not going to sort of cut costs on them. And this, this isn't cutting costs for profitability, it's investing for profitability, which is really good to see. What really wound me up about that Condé Nast story? <laughs> I knew it was coming back in. <laughs> what really wound me up about it was it was disrespectful mm. to a lot of people. It's disrespectful to people who work in print and it's disrespectful to people who buy print. You know, and by his own numbers or, or the company's own numbers, 70 million of them. That's nuts. Yeah. Um, so I think that I just found this a much more honest. Oh, no, it definitely is. I just wonder how this, have any of you seen any reaction to this, either from kind of industry or uh, from other commenters, just because because we're in a sort of receptive mood for this. But I can see, even with a little tweak in how this was explained, this being held up as an example of, again, like you said, dishonesty. So I'm not sure that we are necessarily the most... Um, I, think, I think if you're a print, you know, like a proper page sniffer. Mm. <laughs> you look at this and you'll say, oh yeah, whatever. You're investing round the edges. Because Dot Dash Meredith is all about digital revenue. Mm. There's, there's absolutely no, 
no disputing that fact. So if you're a real evangelist, a head case evangelist for print, you'll say, oh, this is just making noises about supporting print. But actually, that's not the point. It's real. Answers on a postcard. People tell us, are we missing something here? Also, I think there's a marketing branding aspect to this that they're being pretty straightforward about. Mm. You know, that keeping print, I know B2B publishers that print a thousand copies just so it's on the desks yeah. of the, the key buyers so that when yeah, an yeah. advertiser goes in, they see the magazine, it's like, oh, all right. Mm-hmm. This all ties in really nicely to our our interview, Sam. I'm quite excited this is a main story. (laughs) And now on to the news in brief. And Peter, this story that you've chosen actually ties in very neatly to that um, branding and marketing aspect that you're talking about. It does, it does. I'm not a broadcast guy at all. You know, you can listen back to any of the episodes where we talk about (laughs) TV or radio and I'm sat in the background. How does the picture get on the magic box? (laughs) Uh, but Matt Deegan is, um, his Matt on audio newsletter is brilliant. Um, and that's what he just said this really, really good piece explaining the challenges faced by the likes of the BBC, but other broadcasters as they go digital. Um, and kind of was sparked by the BBC's plans to take some channels, notably CBBC. What's the difference mm. between CBBC and CBBC? Esther? Uh, one is like littles and one is children. Mm, so, okay. CB, CBBC, so one's like in the night garden and like one is... Sort of 6 to 12. CBBC mm. is like nursery age. Yeah, CBBC is just colourful shapes, a bunch of funny-looking talking heads and, and some empty platitudes to really calm the nerves of the crying, whinging people watching it. So it's very much like GB News, but for kids. So if you're stoned, you'd be watching CBBS. <laughs> okay, so anyway, CBBC is, I think it's over the three years or something. Anyway, it's supposed to go online only. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Matt's point is that in doing that, the marketing aspect of the linear TV channel is removed. Uh, and these guys then are just up against whoever, you know, Netflix and, and uh, Amazon Prime and Disney and all the rest of it. Whereas the linear TV gives them that, that marketing advantage. Um, I think what he said was, this is a quote, I'm going to quote this because he's smarter than I am. <laughs> I think the reality is the job that linear channels are doing, free marketing and more, is what needs to be replaced with a new concept of product rather than just hoping the audience will find and use a walled garden app. And I think that whole thing of, you know, I hate to bring a bloody name up, but Nadine Doris saying, <laughs> you know, let's let's let Channel Four compete with Netflix. It's just nonsense. Yeah, and, that, and that's really underlines it. It was it's a great great piece. I understood a lot more than understood a lot more after it than I did before it, which is always oh. a mark of a good piece of journalism. I was going to say, yeah, it's it's especially that point is especially vital considering that people will just go to YouTube. There's endless amounts of kids' content on YouTube. Most of it's terrible. And but, dodgy. You know, and dodgy. But at the same time, it's it's a recognizable brand and people will people know to go there for kids' stuff. So yeah, launching this new service and just expecting people to find it is madness. Best on to some slightly better news here. Yeah, publishers have reported a 500% increase in digital audio revenue in the first quarter of 2022, according to the Digital Publishers Revenue Index. 
which is quite impressive. Um, I Where, where's, that- where's Alcott? Where's Alcott? <laughs> <laughs> um, there were tw- there are only twelve publishers included in the sample, which, in my opinion, <laughs> isn't enough to extrapolate that across the whole industry. But it's still a really encouraging picture. Um, the audio revenue for these twelve publishers hit four point two million pounds in Q one twenty twenty two, which is six times what they made in the same time last year. Um, also, it, it doesn't surprise me particularly because the growth we've seen for the awards over the last couple of years, particularly the shift in how publishers are thinking more strategically about their podcasts, it's kind of less like, oh, our brand should have a podcast, let's launch a podcast, and more how can we like leverage the podcast as a full product in its own right, both on the audience and commercial side. So really good on all counts, I think, and podcasts are really starting to pay off if you do them properly as a product. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, a very quick one here about an extremely interesting topic. So please do check out this quick report from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. So it finds that as almost half of news leaders surveyed last December said they were worried that subscription models may super serve richer and more educated audience. Um, I, as we said last week, posh news for posh people, there are still many reader revenue models out there that seek to cater for those lower paying or non-paying audiences and making sure that they do have access to news. It's a balm for the soul if you're worried, as we are, that news is kind of bifurcating and that the people who don't have the means to pay for news uh, will be left out in the cold. We finished on a good note. I know. I, I deliberately did it this week just because I've been tanking the mood over the past couple of weeks. Well, sun shining, red, 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 blue flags yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. How could you not be happy? No. No. <laughs> Did we manage to turn that into depressing? <laughs> this week I spoke to Sarah Vizard, editor at Raconteur, a B2B publisher aimed at business decision makers. Now, business journalism is quite a crowded field, so I started by asking her what makes a story a Raconteur story. Yeah, and you're, I mean you're right. It is it is a crowded field, and so I think more and more you have to find like the reason for why you're telling a story, or the reason for why an audience would come to you. I mean, for raconteur, I'd say we we differentiate ourselves in a couple of different ways. Obviously, lots of um, business journalism is very focused on the news. Um, so I'm just thinking if you read the Times or if you read the FT or, or any of those sorts of places, obviously it's very focused on like driven by the news agenda, what's going on that day and lots of analysis around what's going on there, obviously alongside a lot of the other stuff they do. And then for us, we're also, we see sort of the B2B space um, as sort of part yeah. of our competitor set. And I think there, what they're focused on obviously is their specific area of expertise. So, I mean, I come from, um, I come from the B2B space. I used to work at Marketing Week. So I kind of know what that's about you know you dig really deep into marketing for CMOs for marketers I think what what raconteur is trying to do is offer that kind of broad perspective on the news um, but with that sort of b2b background so what we're doing is I guess covering marketing but for everyone in the c-suite or cybersecurity, but for everyone in the c-suite so rather than digging really deep into I don't know the minute of programmatic advertising because that's what you'd need to know as a marketer we'll say okay so if you're a CEO or a CIO or a CFO, what do you need to know? And therefore, that's how we sort of decide what makes something a raconteur story. Is it is it broad enough and can we offer a big perspective that everyone in the, it's something that everyone in the C-suite will want to know about? That's quite interesting. I was I was looking at your background. And I was like, how have you gone from Marketing Week to, to <laughs> it's sort of I guess you used to cover quite a wide field, and now it's very much like how does all that apply to just this very specific segment? 
Yes, I suppose so. Um, so yeah, I used to be very, I guess I used to work in marketing week and that was narrow, but also I think along with lots of B2B publishers, everything ends up being a little bit broader in the sense that like everyone wants to know what's happening with the future of work. Um, obviously we just do that raconteur across a much wider range of, of topics. Um, so I have to sort of know everything about everything, which is both fascinating and sometimes daunting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, is there anything particular like, like how do you get to the stage where you do know everything or everything and can then distill that into information for people who don't know everything? Mm, so, I mean, the way we work is we have a reasonably small in-house editorial team. It is growing. And when I joined, there was three of us and now there's seven of us and we're about to hire a few more. But we have quite a small in-house team that really focuses on. So what broadly does business care about do business leaders want to know about so it's you know sustainability future of the workplace how to lead how to manage teams sort of cyber security and things like that that, that come up quite a lot and then we have a, a real big um, a roster of freelancers who are much more expert than we are um, and we sort of pull on them quite a bit to sort of dig deep into those topics and help to sort of explain those to the reader so we work in that from an in-house editorial way we look quite broad scope sort of speak to business leaders try to work out what's going on with them and then sort of ask our freelancers who are specialists in the area to kind of dig dig into the into you know what exactly we should be covering. And Raconteur's got quite an interesting relationship with print in the way it's been used to drive digital expansion. Can you talk about how you approach print as a business and, and why it's still relevant? Yeah, so so for us, print is still a really key revenue driver. It's really interesting because in lots of other publishers, you'll see print as sort of a, a byproduct of what they do or a bit of a marketing tool. Um, but for us, it's still kind of the core of our business. And it and because of that, because that's where we get the majority of our revenues from, we've actually been able to use that money to kind of drive our digital expansion rather than the other way around. I know in lots of other publishers, it would have been like, oh, no, print's declining. We must invest in mm. digital before everything disappears. Um, in some ways, we've been lucky and we've been able to do it sort of the other way around I guess we've we've had to do the shift to digital a bit later than some which you could see as an advantage or a disadvantage depending on a, on how you look at it but yeah we've because we've managed to make so much money from print and we still do we rather than just reinvesting that into print we're now kind of reinvesting it into digital as to as to why it works for us I guess we've got quite a um a different use case than lots of other places I think that broad sort of remit that we're taking on and obviously the distribution that we have in a national newspaper makes it quite an appealing proposition for advertisers it's sort of that mass reach that they want but also around a sort of niche topic that they can talk about I don't think there's many other places doing that so it just seems to work really well for us. Yeah do, do you know how that relationship with the Times came about because that, that's quite a, I, I can see the benefits for both but I, like why wouldn't the Times just do that themselves? Back in the midst of time, I don't know the exact story of how it all came about, but I mean, Raconteur has been around for 12 years. And I think the founder of the company just sort of spotted an opportunity that the Times wasn't making the most of, that actually B2B advertisers um, would want to reach that audience and that there was a space as well for people who were reading the Times who wanted to understand mm. some of these sort of business issues. Um, I know quite a few of the other nationals do do it themselves. Um, the Times has chosen to do it through us and we are very grateful to them for that but also I mean we we are one of their biggest clients and um, we provide them with an awful lot of revenue obviously they indirectly provide us with a lot of revenue because that's how we make the money so it's quite a good kind of symbiotic relationship in that way we can bring something that the times doesn't do itself um, and obviously that then generates money for us. 
Um, just generally at Rackenter, what, what does the revenue mix look like? Because I know there's no paywall. Um, so I suppose, is, is it advertising it mainly relies on? Yes, 100% advertising. Um, no, you're right, there is no paywall. We do have a registration wall, uh, but that's more of a sort of a data collection tool um, rather than anything. We obviously have a kind of a big mix of the type of products that we offer. Um, mm. You can display advertising with us. We do lead generation. You can do sponsored content. You can do stuff in print and in digital. We do some events, roundtables, sort of animated infographics. So there's a whole, whole kind of suite of advertising products that we can kind of offer clients. So um, it's, it's a, it is 100% advertising, but it is quite a range there. I would say we're obviously exploring um, the possibilities of um, paywalls and subscriptions like lots of other people are. Um, we've still got plenty of room left for, for growth from advertising. I mean, our revenue, our revenue target is to grow revenues by 20% this year. So there's still a lot of um, upward growth there for us, we think. But we also are really keen to kind of engage our online audience away from the times more than we do now so we're sort of mm. looking at what that might look like for us it probably I mean I don't think we're going to go down the here's you know just pay for all of our content it'll be more of a sort of member club type thing um, but that's what we're obviously looking at it like lots of other publishers are and trying to work out like how that might look for us I'd say as well um, in terms of the revenue mix we're about two-thirds print and a third digital um, wow I think yeah I think a couple of years ago we were about 80 to 90% print. So we're sort of obviously shifting our revenues towards digital, but that's not because print has shrunk and digital has grown. Sort of print is growing and then we've grown the digital on, on top of that. So um, we just see there's, there's still plenty of space for us in the, in the advertising market as well. Yeah. Did that change at all during the pandemic? Because I know a lot of publishers struggled with advertisers just not, not spending money. And, and I know a lot of print publishers struggled as well. We almost had the opposite um sort of found ourselves in quite a, a lucky position somehow so actually I mean we had an awful lot of interest over the pandemic I think partly because companies had budgets that they couldn't spend on like recruitment that they weren't spending on events um and they actually kind of came to us more so in some ways actually the couple of years I mean last year was our best ever year um in terms of kind of profit and, and revenues the year before that was the best one before 2021 so actually the the pandemic was was quite kind to us um so obviously we've just got to make sure that that continues um as we sort of hopefully sort of come out of of that and and behaviors in the advertising industry starts to sort of go back to where they were pre-pandemic and are there things you cover as a business publication that you can then apply to the business itself i'm, I'm i know when i was on the site there's a lot about sort of culture and remote working um, and I'm interested to know how you're applying some of what you cover internally as a publisher. So this is actually actually a little bit of a running joke at Raconteur. Um, so we have a, an event um, every Friday, which we call kind of weekly wins, where we kind of highlight across the business kind of cool things or great things that we've done. And I'm always highlighting kind of the articles that we've written every week. I'm like, oh, here's this company offering three day working weeks or unlimited holiday. And my CEO is always like, could you please stop highlighting these to everyone in the business? <laughs> But, um, but in reality, like, I think it's really important that we we obviously can't do everything that we write about and nor would we want to because we've got to do the right stuff strategically for raconteur. But I think it's helped us, especially at the moment with things around kind of the great resignation and the difficulties with hiring. It's helped us to understand better what other companies are doing to then maybe learn from them. Um, we do an awful lot of work has been put in at raconteur on kind of the the culture how we treat our staff, kind of our, our perspective on remote working and flexible working. So 
we're pretty like we offer pretty flexible options. I go into the office once a week. Um, I encourage my team to go into the office on the same day as I do. But if there's a reason why they can't go in that day or they've just got loads of work on and they would be at home because they feel like they might be a bit productive, then that's fine. Some weeks we go in more often, some weeks we go in like less often. I've got lots of people working at kind of different times that work for them, taking lunch whenever. So we try to take that kind of flexible approach. Um, and then just I think it's a it's always a good idea to read about what other companies are doing well we've got a series called like going against the grain um, which highlights some really great stuff that other businesses are doing we just did a recent one about eve sleep playing companies sort of pick and mix their bank holidays and i think it just prompts interesting conversations internally we obviously can't do everything that we write about um but i think it helps us to to know what other businesses are doing and think oh actually yeah maybe that's something that we should have a discussion about and something that we can take on i suppose how do you go about finding what CEOs are interested in and business leaders? Do you look at search trends or do you sort of talk to your community? It's a mixture of things, really. Um, we've obviously got a smallish in-house team, but I sort of send them off to events and conferences and things as they're starting to ramp back up again to try and find out what people are talking about it. I think I've got a guy down at Adweek Europe um, this week just to kind of find out what CMOs and things are talking about, have a few meetings. We look at, yeah, we look at the Google search trends um, try to find out what people are searching for, what they're interested in. We obviously monitor what people read on our website. Um, we can get a sense of like what we think our audience is interested in if we know they read a lot about like, or we know they read a lot about the future workplace and sort of um, employee engagement and things like that. We kind of know that that's of interest to them. So we sort of double down on some of, of that stuff. And yeah, it's just... You know, you have lots of conversations as a journalist with lots of different people. So sometimes that'll be for a specific reason. Or I'd like to talk to you about this thing you announced or we've got you know, a report coming out about AI trends. And I know you do stuff, so we want to talk to you about that specifically. But I think you always try and have a bit of a conversation with them about, you know, at the end, sort of what are your opportunities, what are your challenges? Can you get anything that sort of you go, oh, I didn't think of that, that can just sort of send you in a slightly different direction. So we a sort of a range of things, I guess, sort of most journalists would do. So we can hope then that maybe this interest in three and four day working weeks is going to come to something. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we can, but hope. I mean, I think, I mean, we do offer, I mean, there's quite a few people in the business that do sort of run, do work to sort of four day weeks, just sort of depends where you work and what your sort of needs are, I guess. We're quite flexible in that way. Yeah. And you've mentioned already, um, you've got things like registration forms. How important is data to you as a B2B publisher and, and what data would you say you most rely on? It's really important, but it's something that we've really only focused on over kind of the past couple of years as we've sort of refocused our efforts on digital. We've got actually quite a big, I think, a reasonably big data team now of sort of three people and we're hiring a data analyst. We've done an awful lot of work, especially now that we've got the reg wall to understand not only what people are reading, but like who is reading what. So we kind of have data now on people's seniority, what industry they work in, what discipline they work in, the size of business. Um, so we can use all of that data to understand, OK, so we think that people are really interested in the future of workplace. Is it actually the case that that's only HR leaders and no one else is reading it? Or is it the case that it's the managers that are interested in that and not kind of entry level people? So we can kind of dig down quite well now into kind of what our different audiences are interested in. Um, and, we've, and we use um, Bombora as well, which helps us to understand people that aren't registered with us and what they're up to. For me, in terms of the data that I most rely on, I mean, on a, on a sort of day-to-day, week-to-week basis, I spend a lot of time in Google Analytics looking at 
what's getting read, what newsletters are being opened, what's getting clicked in newsletters. We're obviously interested in sort of people who come to us from Google and what they're doing, but my main focus is on kind of newsletter signups and people who are registered with us and what they're interested in, because obviously that's our engaged audience and the ones that we sort of, you know, want to monetize. So they're the ones that we're kind of most interested in knowing what they're doing. For the sales yeah. guys, they're super interested in seniority and um, what disciplines they work in and that sort of stuff. But for me, it's just always like, what are our readers interested in? What are they spending time on the site on? And therefore, what do we need to do more of, do less of? Yeah. And what's the overlap like between the print content and the digital content? In print, we have a much bigger audience because it's the times and in a sense of their interests are quite a lot wider. So in print, we cover some things that we would not really cover online around like healthcare and stuff like that because we do like a healthcare report. But healthcare is not a big thing for us online at all. Um, and then vice versa. So we've got our entire team who we know they write about kind of workplace, employee engagement, digital learning, that sort of stuff. And then we do reports on that. So it, some of those will go into online. Before I joined, it was very much like print and digital were very separate and it was mostly print and we just sort of put stuff that was in print online. Now it's more strategic than that. Um, so we have our digital team who writes stuff specifically for our online audience and our print team who writes stuff specifically for our print audience. But we sort of talk in the middle and we're like, oh, actually, if you've got a hybrid working report coming up, we've already written these four great pieces. We'll put them in the report and kind of vice versa. So it's kind of there's quite a, there is quite an overlap, but the audiences are slightly different. So we do tailor as well. Um, and what about the visual element? I, I feel like whenever I've seen Raconteur content, it's the infographics that I've seen shared on sort of places like LinkedIn. Yeah, it is a really big part of the business. And I have to say, it's been amazing to work somewhere where design is so important. Because um, I think for a lot of publishers, you sort of end up just using thousands of Getty stock images mm. and your websites and things <laughs> can look a little bit rubbishy. Um, and it's, I mean, it's expensive to have a good design team, but I mean, our design team are amazing and super talented and I am forever just going, wow, at, like the, the illustrations and things they come up with around some like slightly more esoteric uh, content. You know, they have to design things around like cybersecurity and AI, which, you know, to come up with new ideas for these sorts of topics can get quite difficult, I think. But it's a really, it's a really key part of the brand and it always has been in print. And we're quite well known for our infographics, for our illustrations. We try to make them stand out in print because obviously people get a newspaper. We are insert in the newspaper. We don't want people to just chuck us in the bin. To do that, you need to grab their attention. And we see kind of that design element are really eye-catching front covers and stuff is a really key way to do that. It's sort of we're now very focused on doing that online as well. So trying to make our website, our social media, our newsletters sort of much more feel and look much more like raconteur using that kind of the color palettes we have the illustrations kind of bringing the, the the fact that we're known for data and print online so it's a really it's really collaborative actually it's um we have kind of weekly meetings with the design team trying to work out like what we could do better on the website where they can help us sort of the big the big articles or features or series that we've coming up that they could kind of input into so it's actually a really nice relationship and quite and one that I've not really had before so it's it's been great I wonder if that's one of those areas that because you've got the big digital, uh, big print investment that you've got the investment in the print team and that kind of has like the halo effect on the digital. Because I, I feel like there's there's not a lot of digital publishers that do put that investment into design. No, I mean, there's a few, but yeah, certainly not as many, I guess. I mean, and the design team are always a bit like, oh, if I was in print, I could do X, Y, Z and digital is a bit more limiting. But I think <laughs> if you can work really well together on that, like you say, you do get that halo effect of um 
you know, it's such a big focus in print, but actually we need to draw that online as well. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to hear about the New Voices programme, which you've just launched. Um, can you talk about that and how it came about? So New Voices is actually, I can't really take any of the credit for this. Um, this is the brainchild of my deputy, uh, Fran Cassidy. So she's been at Raconteur for kind of, I think, three or four, four years, I think, coming up, actually. Um, and she's really passionate about getting new and more diverse voices uh, into journalism. And in part, I mean, as I, I mentioned before, we've got quite a big roster of freelancers. And um, as part of the work we've been doing over the past 18 months, we've been seeing like who they are, um, how we can kind of expand that roster. And we just sort of noticed that it's, as you might expect, a little bit male dominated, a little bit uh, white dominated. Um, and so we were, just one, we were just thinking about ways that we could improve our freelancer database. Well, at the same time, I, I think recognising that our in-house editorial team is probably not as diverse as it could be either. Um, you know, we've got a pretty good gender balance, but I don't think we've got a very good balance on most of the <laughs> most of the other aspects of um, of diversity. So, we were just really aware that we were just we would while we were doing this work that there was some stuff that we needed to do. So, I mean, it was Fran that came up with the idea. She was like, as we can go out there and talk to people on LinkedIn and I'll talk, talk to people on Twitter and freelancers about coming to join with us. But actually the problem seems to be like getting people into journalism in the first place. Like there's just not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of people out there from diverse backgrounds who are getting the breaks that they need. So that was where this idea came from basically. So the idea of the new voices program is that we will take at the moment five. So it's supposed to start in June, the first one. So we're going to take five people, um, who have not done any sort of journalism training and are from an underrepresented background. And that can kind of mean anything. Um, it doesn't mean that you, you know, you're 18 years old and you've just come out of school. It could be that you're someone who's older or someone who's got care responsibilities or someone who's just found it hard to get into journalism, doesn't know how to do it, hasn't had to make that first step. And we will give them a 12-week programme that will guide them through okay, the basics of how to be a good freelance business journalist. So things like um, how to come up with good ideas, how to pitch, how to interview people, how to source data. Um, and then we will work with them to come up with an idea that we think would work for the raconteur audience. They will get the opportunity to write it. We will sub it as long as it obviously meets our standards. We will then publish it. So at the end of it, they'll get a piece um, that will go certainly onto raconteur.net and possibly into one of our reports as well. And we just thought, you know, we do, we talk a lot in our in our journalism, as you sort of said about wanting to improve diversity and inclusion we've done a lot of work around like international women's day and we'll be doing stuff for pride month and we kind of wanted to to walk the walk a little bit as well not just talk mm. about what other companies were doing but like what we could do to improve the situation so as i say it's a small start it's we've just we've just kicked it off we're just going through the applications now the first sort of cohort if you like to call them that will start in june and we'll sort of see how that pilot program goes and then sort of take it from there but hopefully to run probably like a couple of years of these yeah and then finally we ask all our guests what's the last thing is you read or saw that really affected you for me I don't know if um you follow Deborah James and Bal Babe at all yeah um, but um I followed her for quite a few years on on Instagram and and Twitter and things and um, a friend of mine died from cancer a few years ago so I just found some of her work really inspirational so there was an interview in the times that she did um, with one of their reporters there who she'd done quite a few interviews with over the year over the years and um I just that was probably the one for me that I found most affecting I just think here's one person who's made like such a big change and such a big um impression on lots of people and have raised has raised awareness of, of bowel cancer 
and um, is not afraid to get out there and sort of speak her mind um, and give across her opinions, even if it's, you know, a really difficult time. So I think that that for me was something that's sort of really affected me. And it's just a really, I think it must be, it's difficult journalism, you know, to go and speak mm. to someone who's had that news. Um, I think it was handled really well. So yeah, that for me is, is the one that sort of affected me recently. Well, don't forget that we do have a vast array now, a vast archive of past episodes. And if you want to go and check them out, you can do so by going to Voices.media. It's effectively a treasure trove. It's basically a time capsule of media news over the past, God, four, five, six years at this point. We're five and a half um, now. And if you do want to contribute to keeping the Media Voices lights on in light of that invaluable service we're doing of preserving media history, then you can visit our <laughs> Ko-fi page. Um, you can do that by going to voices.media slash support and kick us a couple of quid, either as a one-off or regularly. We love it when people do it. It makes it all feel worthwhile. Um, if you want to forget about history and look at what's happening right now, sign up for our newsletter. It goes out every weekday. And it's just four stories that give you a sense of what's going on in the world of media. Sign up on the website, voices.media. But until Thursday, when Peter will be bringing you all the news from the FIP Congress in Portugal, where it's lovely Ooh. and sunny. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see you then, or we'll be back the following Monday with another guest. Goodbye.